1: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Centre for European Reform podcast. Please note that we recorded on Wednesday the 19th of October, the day before Liz Truss handed in her resignation as UK Prime Minister. Some of the references to her and her government will now be slightly outdated, but this doesn't change a lot of the overall subject matter. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Hello and welcome to the Centre for European Reform podcast. I'm Rosie Georgie, the CER's Media Coordinator, and I'll be hosting this Ask the CER episode, where you, our listeners, write in with questions for our experts, who in turn do their best to answer them. Today we'll be considering what the EU has in its locker for mitigating the energy crisis, how London is diverging from EU financial services regulation, and which leaders hold the most weight in EU circles. To shed some light on these topics, I have with me my colleagues Elisabetta Cornago and Zach Myers, who are both senior research fellows at the CER, and Camino Mortero-Martinez, who's head of our Brussels office. Let's start with the energy crisis, something of which we are all too aware as winter looms. So we know that the origins of the crisis are complex, gas supply failing to meet demand as we rebounded from the COVID pandemic, a particularly cold winter last year and a hot summer this year, low energy yields from wind and nuclear, and then Russia turning down gas flows to Europe ahead of its invasion of Ukraine, and doing this even more in recent months. And as consumers, we're braced for rising bills, and that's if we haven't already felt their impact already. So what are European governments doing to resolve the crisis and to prevent it escalating even more out of control? That's the basis of Sophie from Paris's question, who's written in asking what the European Commission's latest emergency measures are. Ministers met this week and tabled new proposals yesterday. Um, Just so you know, we're recording on Wednesday the 19th. And this is a fast moving topic and obviously hard for all 27 member states to reach agreement on. So before we get to this week's latest and amid all of the ideas that have been floated up until now, Elisabetta, could you please walk us through what's actually been agreed on so
0: far? Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Rosie. And thanks, Sophie, for for her question. Um, I'd say so far we can distinguish uh, three main sets of measures that have been uh, that have been approved in in the past few months. The first one on storage, uh, the second set of measures on energy demand reduction, and the third on redistributing windfall profits. So about the first part, um, in June, the EU 27 agreed on voluntary targets for gas storage to ensure that storage refills in time for heating season and ensures security of supply of gas. So the goal was basically saying that underground gas storage in the EU must be filled to at least 80% uh, by early November and 90% in the the upcoming then uh, winters and and years. Um, But the thing is, uh, there are good news. The goal has already been met as today storage is 92% full EU-wide. So so as I said, that's good news, but it's also been a costly effort, uh, right? Because most of uh, gas supplies to refill Um, storage uh, were purchased over summer, contributing to pushing up uh, prices. And and this is something that's also been addressed by measures tabled um, yesterday, and we'll discuss that in a bit. Second set of measures are about energy demand reduction. So member states have essentially agreed on targets um, to reduce demand Uh, of energy by a certain amount. And the the idea is to act both on gas and electricity demand so that then uh, this will translate into lower prices. So on the gas side, EU member states have agreed to reduce their their gas consumption by 15% by March uh, relative to basically the average consumption in, in the past five years. And more recently, uh, similar targets have been agreed with respect to electricity. A voluntary reduction of uh, 10% in, in electricity consumption and a mandatory one of 5% uh, when it comes to electricity consumption at peak time. Uh, and basically, this means that there's, there's an urgency to, to reduce electricity Demand in general, but particularly when electricity demand is is peaking, when it is highest. And as a consequence, there is a higher than um, need to to fire up uh, gas power plants to to meet demand. Right. So when you act on on then peak electricity demand, you can reduce basically the the, the amount of time when gas power plants are used and, and thus reduce the, I guess, impact of gas prices on electricity prices. And I think it's it's good that we finally see energy savings in in targets in policy. This was honestly, I think, long overdue. Um, but I do also think that there are still to lose, as they are primarily voluntary targets.
1: We've talked about targets on storage and on energy savings. Can you tell us what's been decided on the windfall profit
0: side? Right, um, as I mentioned, there's a third set of measures that's been agreed so far. And this really is about redistribution uh, and and windfall profits, as you said. So the idea behind these measures is to raise revenues to essentially fund government efforts to support consumers uh, in the face of high energy prices. And the idea is to do so by extracting part of the windfall profits obtained by those energy companies that are benefiting from the crunch. So uh, the first measures uh, in in this set is a cap on revenues of low cost electricity producers set at 180 euros per megawatt hour of electricity. And these will apply to producers whose um, uh, generation costs are lower than those of gas power plants. uh, And these are renewables, nuclear, coal, and this measure is going to be in place until uh, June 2023. The idea is to curb the windfall profits uh, of those, again, technologies, those generators that have been um, benefiting from the spike in electricity prices driven by gas prices, while still you know, ensuring that prices are high enough to, to maintain a certain degree of profitability. The second measure in this in this batch is a so-called solidarity contribution from fossil fuel businesses, so the focus here is on oil, natural gas, coal, and refinery uh, refined oil products. Um, this contribution is is the another windfall profit tax, right? I mean, you can notice how essentially policymakers have been careful avoiding the, the words windfall profit taxes, but indeed, I mean, this is pretty much what we are talking about, and it will be calculated on excess profits made by these companies, so companies in these sectors in 2022 and 2023. And to simplify a bit, uh, I'd say excess profits are defined as as profits above um, 20% increase of the average yearly profit since 2018. And the point of these measures is then to direct these revenues towards supporting electricity consumers that have been squeezed by, by high prices. But EU members can still decide exactly how to use these revenues themselves, what measure to set up. And we have already seen a lot of diversity among members from targeted cash transfers to to blanket caps of of retail prices, for example, that apply to all consumers as opposed to just um, uh, lower income, vulnerable consumers, for example. One point I'd say is a bit weak here is that member states uh, with the different energy mixes will then raise different amounts of, of revenues from these measures and Particularly, for example, those that do not have uh, a lot of non gas production, or rather, those that do have a lot of gas production, uh, to to put it more simply, uh, electricity through gas production, um, are not going to be raising um, uh, many, many revenues, many public revenues uh, with, with this revenue cap for example, uh, and, and, and likewise for those that import a lot of their electricity. So some bilateral deals uh, between, essentially, electricity trade partners uh, need, need to be set up to share uh, these revenues. And the question is, how will that happen? Will, will that be enough, essentially, to, in a way, contribute to plugging the hole in public budgets that um, emergency measures have been contributing to?
1: Okay, well thank you Elizabeth. that um that clears a lot up and then so we're, if we're talking about the new proposals that were discussed yesterday um what were they and and which do you think will be adopted
0: right so this latest batch of proposals is about really the the gas market so trying to lower gas prices, uh, more specifically. Um, and the first proposal in, in, in this is essentially joint procurement. So the Commission is proposing that EU member states pull together their gas demand and, and essentially join forces to collectively negotiate lower prices with gas suppliers. And the aim of these is to avoid bidding wars uh, that push up gas prices, which in a way is what happened over the past summer um, when uh, member states uh, were busy uh, trying to refill gas storage and meet meet targets in this sense. If uh, the U27 decide to buy gas together, then the idea is that they can leverage the size of the single market. In a way, uh, it's a bit similar to what was done with uh, COVID vaccines a couple of years back. I I do think this is likely to, to be adopted, but It is a big change as we are heading into uh, mandates uh, as opposed to voluntary measures. But at the same time, I think that leaders do realize that bidding wars are not beneficial to anyone and uh, refilling storage next year ahead of next winter without Russian gas flowing in is going to be even, even harder. The second measure proposed yesterday is about the uh, the Dutch TTF, which means a title transfers facility, and this is a virtual trading hub for natural gas and an acronym that uh, all of us, uh, not only uh, gas uh, specialists, uh, have been hearing a lot more recently. So the focus on the TTF is due to the fact that prices on on this trading hub are higher than on other regional hubs, and this reflects in a way. the the growing reliance of Europe on LNG liquefied natural gas, as opposed to pipeline gas. And this is as essentially the EU uh, tries to to quickly reduce its uh, imports of pipeline gas from Russia and instead uh, tries to, uh, to to increase its imports from other uh, gas uh, providers such as uh, Qatar, uh, the U S and others. Now, What the commission is suggesting is a kind of dynamic cap on on gas prices of transactions on the TTF. And and this is a temporary intervention to to take place essentially while the commission comes up with an alternative gas price benchmark that better reflects uh, the importance of uh, liquefied natural gas uh, as opposed to pipeline gas in Europe. As you can notice, this is a a very technical discussion, but uh, I do not think that we have reached uh, probably the the end of it, as the Commission and member states still need to to iron out the details of all this. The third and final sort of set of proposals forward yesterday is trying to to line up concrete uh, measures for energy solidarity, essentially some sort of contingency planning in case Of gas supply shortage. Because not all member states have have stipulated bilateral agreements to ensure they can secure gas from from others uh, in in, in the case of of shortage of gas, the commission is proposing some some sort of default solidarity rules between member states and as well as a mechanism to allocate gas towards member states that are affected by a regional supply emergency. Again, rather um, technical measures, but here the, the essence is to make sure that Member states are ready in case of serious gas shortage, as some are more dependent on, on pipeline gas than others. And as such, you know, may, may not by themselves be able to, to, to seek LNG uh, supplies as quickly as others to, to replace uh, pipeline gas.
1: Well, thank you, Elizabeth. Now, wherever you're listening from, I'd wager that something else you will have seen is the sheer level of upheaval in the UK's politics and its economy. Martine from London asked a question about the UK's divergence from EU rules post-Brexit and the UK having put that into practice is a clear factor in what we've seen happen in the UK of late. For instance, in 2014, when the UK was obviously still part of the EU, the EU introduced a cap on bankers' bonuses, limiting them to twice a banker's basic salary, and this was to try to keep a lid on excessive risk-taking. But last month, the UK government rolled back this ban since it wasn't constrained by EU rules. And this is just one example. Martine says she's deeply concerned about the level of regulatory divergence that is emerging between the UK and the EU in the financial services sector. And that it's a major challenge for businesses, investors, policyholders and other market participants. She asked, is the UK government taking a different approach for the sake of it or is their method in its madness? So, Zach, what's your take on this? Does the UK government have an overall plan? And if so, what is it?
2: Thanks, Rosie. That's a great question. And given the UK political drama in recent days, I think that we would all answer it a bit differently than we would have just a few weeks ago. So to provide some background, the experience under the UK's last prime minister, Boris Johnson, was that there are a large number of different policy documents that were published canvassing all sorts of divergences from EU laws that overall had an aim of improving the UK's competitiveness and boosting growth. But in fact, I think it's fair to say this created a lot of uncertainty about the UK's future direction, because, you know, there was not a lot of actual substantive changes to laws and regulations that that were passed. You know, this was all mostly in the policy document stage. So, for example, in the financial services space, a lot of the effort was on trying to just get the necessary changes through so that, financial regulation could still function in the UK after Brexit. So, for example, moving the functions that used to be held by EU banking authorities and financial services authorities so that they could now be undertaken by UK financial regulators. He didn't really move on to kind of substantively unwinding the EU regime in the UK. Now, Prime Minister Liz Truss came into power with a promise of being a lot more aggressive and achieving quite quick radical deregulation and you can see that from her cabinet which is mostly made up of similar free marketeers Um, you've already mentioned that she abolished the cap on bankers bonuses and there's also for example speculation that she wants to merge the three different uk financial services regulators the financial conduct authority Uh, the Prudential Regulation Authority and the Payment System Regulator to create some single mega financial regulator. So critics have said that, you know, this is a terrible idea because you have so many different responsibilities and it's too much for one regulator to properly cover. But you can kind of see how it reflects Truss's approach, which is this underlying philosophy that regulators should not do very much to interfere with markets. And I guess thirdly, she has also canvassed giving government more oversight over what regulators and the Bank of England uh, are doing rather than leaving them to be independent. Um, And finally, she's insisted that most inherited EU rules will just expire at the end of 2023 unless there's decisions that are made to actively retain them. So, you know, that's obviously bringing quite a lot of uncertainty into the market. Um, But but what we've seen with her mini budget is that uh, markets and investors and policyholders don't really or necessarily want to see a whole lot of radical changes happen all at once without them being carefully thought through. And so, you know, now we've seen the market fallout from her going too fast. It's difficult to know what she will want to do now and what she will have the political credibility to do in terms of financial regulation reform. So I would suggest that there's a couple of lessons that the government needs to take on board when they go forward. The first is that a bonfire of EU regulation sounds like fun and it obviously gets really good press um, you know, in, in certain newspapers in the UK. But really what businesses value most is long-term certainty and that's something that the UK hasn't had for you know, quite a few years now. And for example, that means that it's actually valuable to businesses to keep regulators independent from politics even if those regulators aren't necessarily doing everything the government would want all the time. Uh, A second lesson is that there's often a good reason for EU regulations. So when you pull them back, there's not necessarily a free lunch. And a good example of this is uh, the UK's proposal to diverge from Solvency 2, which is an EU law that regulates pension funds and essentially requires them to invest in very safe assets. Mm -hmm. And so Trust wants to allow pension funds more scope to invest in UK infrastructure instead. But she really needs to realise that uh, this will make pension funds be able to choose to take on more risks. And we've seen recently that they can already be quite vulnerable to market shocks. So, you you know, you need to think about this quite carefully rather than just focus on growth at all else. Um, And thirdly, I think an important lesson is that considered reform, you know, reform that stakeholders are going to have confidence in it takes time and it takes resources and it's better being done slowly and carefully so you know none of us really know what how long this trust is going to be prime minister in the UK and who might succeed her but you know I think we should all hope that future changes to financial services regulation are nuanced and subtle and carefully thought through and there's a bit less chaos and a bit more method
1: Thanks, Zach. So talking about the EU and the UK going their separate ways on regulation leads us nicely into the second question that I have for you. It's about the Digital Services Act, which is a new flagship piece of legislation which the EU agreed upon in March. And its aim is to make big tech and social media more transparent and accountable in policing harmful online content. Kevin from Ireland said he's pleased to see that the EU got the DSA over the line but he wants to know if the EU plans to introduce legislation whereby individuals can themselves challenge social media where they feel that the platform supports abuse or defamation of their character.
2: Thanks Rosie. Yeah, the in- negative impacts of social media have definitely been in the spotlight in recent years and of course there's been many recent examples we can think of in the media about how social media has been used to abuse individuals. And that was definitely one of the key reasons why the EU pushed forward quickly with the Digital Services Act. But a real challenge for the EU has been balancing freedom of speech on the one hand with the need to keep social media safe. On the other hand, that's pretty hard in any one country and you can just look at how the UK has not really been able to achieve a consensus on on how to do this. But it's monumentally harder for the EU because it has 27 member states and they all have their own political culture and want to achieve their own different balance on those issues. So, essentially, what the Digital Services Act does is create a sharp distinction between content which is illegal and other content which is known as kind of lawful but awful content. Illegal content can include some types of hate speech and some types of discrimination but it depends on the law of each individual EU member state. So it wouldn't necessarily include all content which is abusive or which some people might perceive as defamatory. When it comes to legal content, the Act means that social media companies have to take down content uh, that's illegal once they become aware of it, which is usually because someone could complain about it, including the person who's the subject of the abuse, of course. And it also means that there's a process to appeal decisions about whether how social media companies decide to act on complaints. You can imagine that this is gonna be a hugely difficult task for them. Uh, Normally it's up to courts to decide on the fine line between, for example, uh, unlawful defamation and simply expressing a negative opinion of someone. And so social media companies are suddenly going to have their work cut out for them and they will almost certainly have to cope with a large number of appeals. So it'll be very interesting to see how that works in practice and whether it is actually effective in um, cutting down on, on online abuse. In relation to lawful but awful content, social media companies will get a lot more leeway under the act. So they'll be able to choose in their terms and conditions whether to allow that type of content and how they're going to treat it. So, for example, some might allow it but not uh, amplify it in their algorithms. But whatever they decide to do, uh, the act will mean that social media companies have to enforce their standards objectively. So you can imagine that you might have family-friendly social media firms that want to be a bit more restrictive and try to make sure that their platforms are kind of a safe place for children to be. And there might be others that are more absolutist about um, free speech um, and kind of allow anything that's not legal. The other thing that's important to keep in mind is that big social media companies, so the biggest ones like Facebook, will also need to regularly analyse the social risks of their services. And that includes risks to people's physical and mental well-being. But still, they will have some scope to decide how they, what they want to do to mitigate those risks, and we can expect companies to take different approaches. Uh, the EU has commenced a, a number of other initiatives uh, to try to help abuse. Uh, one of these is the 2016 Code of Conduct on illegal hate speech, which a lot of the biggest social media platforms are a part of, and that will, should complement the Digital Services Act in a few ways by imposing higher standards in a couple of cases for example, by setting a benchmark of 24 hours for companies to remove hate speech that's been reported. Uh, But, you know, as I said, I don't think that any of this is going to resolve complaints about social media, especially because not all offensive material is illegal and it's still very much up to social media companies how they deal with that material. So I think that, you know, over time, we will almost certainly see some pressure to update the Digital Services Act sooner or later Uh, But it's hard to know what direction that will take. So there'll certainly be people who want to ensure uh, that the DSA goes further in protecting children and vulnerable people online and others who will insist that it shouldn't limit free speech uh, any more than it already does.
1: Okay, perfect. Thank you, Zach. Finally, I'll turn to you, Camino, for you to consider the EU's internal dynamics and who the big hitters might be. This year alone, we've seen Emmanuel Macron re-elected, Mario Draghi resign, Georgia Maloney set to take over in Italy, and new Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Christensen about to come into office, just to name a few. Karim from Oslo wanted to know which country or politician is likely to make the biggest mark on the EU's economic and political
3: development. How do you see this? Well, Rosie, I think at the base of politics today, I'm Maybe making a prediction that will be outdated by tomorrow, because who could have thought that in October 2022 we would be pondering whether a Letius could at last Britain's second prime minister of the year? But you know, here we are. Um, Karin asks, who is the most powerful politician in Europe? And to me, the answer is very simple, and that's Volodymyr Zelensky. I think by bravely resisting Putin's war of aggression, and rightly and very bluntly pushing allies to help, President Zelensky and his government have been able to drive European politics and shake the EU decision-making processes in a way that 70-plus years of European integration could not. So in the eight months since the war began, we've seen power shifts, which were unthinkable just last year. And just to give you some examples, Germany is basically alienating countries all across the block because, uh, partially because, not only because of this, but obviously uh, partially because of its over on Russian gas and its initial reluctance to let go of it uh, amongst other things like weapons deliveries and things like that. Um, Poland, which just a few months ago was a pariah in EU circles because of the current government's attacks on the independence of the judiciary, is now playing a very, very central role in steering the EU's response to a very complex conflict. Uh, France, as well, and very recently, fiercely opposed to EU enlargement, is now trying to find ways to accommodate Ukraine's claims to EU membership. And the European Commission, which is not your average geopolitical heavy hitter, or at least was not uh, before, has become a quite respected international actor, swiftly and continuously imposing sanctions on Russia and pushing member states to take decisions in key areas like energy. It has become a cliche to say that there is a before and after February 24th, 2022, but when it comes to the EU inner workings and power sharing, it truly is. And just by the way, my money is on the lettuce.
1: Thank you very much, Camino. And thank you also to Elisabetta and Zach for joining me for this episode of Ask the CER. Um, I do hope you have enjoyed listening to the Centre for European Reform podcast. Thank you for tuning in and do subscribe and leave us a review if you're feeling nice. And we'll see you next time. Bye bye.
0: Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.